everything in this business should be, should be measured, driven by data and process should be plug and play. You know, there's, there should not be anything in this business where if, if one element uh, collapses, it, 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 it cannot be easily replaced, right? What's up, Powder Keg fans? I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and this is episode 88 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas decidedly outside of Silicon Valley. Today, we're talking all about marketplaces, and I sat down with my friend, Robert Prevel, who is a serial entrepreneur and a total expert on marketplaces. The business model, the scale points, and just the sheer power of leveraging marketplaces. So whether your business has a primary value creator of a marketplace, or you're looking for a way to scale value, we're gonna talk about that in today's episode. Robert shared some pretty interesting stories, including selling his first marketplace business to Jeff Bezos back in the day, so so of course, we dive into some of the lessons learned there. Robert is from Wilmington, North Carolina, and he's the founder and CEO of Quipped, which is a B2B marketplace that matches businesses who need to rent equipment with a global network of rental suppliers. In this episode, you're going to learn how to choose the right model to succeed in the marketplace world, uh, as well as some of the core challenges of starting out and how companies can win long-term with a marketplace model. Hey, Robert, thanks so much for taking time today to uh, be a part of the Powder Keg podcast. It's been a long time since we connected, but you have been up to some amazing things. Uh, for those who don't know, would you mind maybe giving us the, the quick high level of what Quipped is? Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on the Powder Keg podcast. You, you have built an amazing platform yourself. Um, so uh, Quipped is a B2B marketplace and platform for equipment rentals and leasing. Uh, simply put, and, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it just is an easy analogy to understand. We are Airbnb for equipment rentals, and we are Lending Tree for equipment leasing. And can you kind of give me some some sense of like size and scale, whether that's revenue, number of customers, number of employees? Yeah, absolutely. So we we span about thirty different industry verticals, ranging from lab and medical equipment to construction, engineering, audiovisual, and food service. Uh, we have had uh, approximately 15,000 organizations, large and small, use our platform to either source or uh, secure uh, equipment. Organizations like Apple, Coca-Cola, General Dynamics, uh, Lockheed, Boeing, governments, municipalities. It's, it's a wide, wide range of organizations that, that use the, the, uh, the platform. Uh, we have uh, about 1,100 suppliers, which, which are primarily manufacturers and distributors uh, on, on, on the marketplace. And we estimate there to be about $200 million worth of equipment available through Quipped. I'm so excited about the traction that you guys uh, have built. I mean, not just traction, but momentum. Because uh, when we first met, you guys had traction. When you presented on the powder keg stage years ago, uh, in, I think we were in Raleigh, but you guys are based in Wilmington. Is that correct? That's correct. Wilmington, North Carolina. Nice. Well, I definitely want to get into why Wilmington, North Carolina, and how you started Quipped. But first, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your own personal backstory. I know every entrepreneur has an interesting uh, origin story. So could you maybe like give me some insight into what your first entrepreneurial memory is? Gosh, you know, I, I remember being maybe seven or eight years old and going to a restaurant to eat with my parents and the, and the uh, owner of the restaurant came out and he was greeting people that were eating there. And I remember saying to myself, like, I want to be that guy. Hmm. Um, 
What was it about that guy? That- well, 20 years later, I decided there's no way I ever wanted to get into the restaurant business <laughs> or own a restaurant. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's just, uh, I was always attracted to a certain sense of freedom that came with entrepreneurship um, and, and, and uh, the creativity, you know, what, what, what um, you know, it's, it's sort of an expression of, of yourself, an expression of creativity that you, I, I was not able to find in, in working for another organization. Yeah, I I can definitely relate to that. And so was that something that was sort of like a seed that was planted for you when you were seven, eight years old and you kind of carried it with you and nurtured it? Or was it like you went home and started your own you lemonade know, stand? I, it, it, I think there was a seed there, but entrepreneurship back in the early to mid 90s wasn't called entrepreneurship. You know, that, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't really a buzzword back then. So, you know, um, uh, we were groomed to go to school and get a good job and do what our parents did. Um, yeah. So that's sort of the path that I went down. However, uh, I did start a company in college. I started a web developing company. Uh, uh, back then it was, it was sort of innovative. Now, not so much. Um, I, did the, I did the same in college, actually. How did you come across the, the idea? So I, I, um, I went to school for engineering and I, and, uh, I lived in a, in, a, in a dorm where they combined engineering students with computer science students. And, and I met some guys and uh, they sort of got me involved in computers. And I remember building a website for my, my friends were in a band and, and they, had, they had signed a label in Germany and they were touring Europe. And I built this website for their band and people were like emailing me from Germany. And you know, at the time, that, that was like, it was weird. It was weird to like, you know, I didn't know anybody outside my hometown. Now I got people from Germany wanting to know information about my friends and what, where they were playing and what they were doing. So um, it just, just, you know, that was a very exciting time to be part of, you know, the, the sort of the birth of the internet and, and the World Wide Web. And it was, it was, you know, you were opening up the world in a way that was not ever done before. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. What was it about software development that kind of uh, attracted you into that profession? You know, I'm not sure it was the idea of software development that got me excited. It was, it was, it was the, uh, you know, building websites then and, and still now, it's, it's more like being in the publishing business. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's, it's creating content or applications or platforms, whatever it may be, but, but um, executing it in, in, in a way not unfamiliar to old school publishers where, you know, you're getting your message out to, you know, uh, the world and, and you have that access in a way that, you know, only uh, organizations with a lot of money and, and resources had prior. So, yeah. so that's sort of what got me excited about it. And, and we started the web development company in college and, and we, we, uh, we sold uh, to, um, you know, our, our clients were, were commercial companies. We were building their first website, um, which, you know, I think at the time they were, they were early adopters. Um, and, and, and they let us sort of do it. And, and I, I thought we did a pretty good job of it. Uh, but that actually led into that. That was sort of the, the, the baseline for my, my career path there on out. You know, I went okay. to mechanical engineering and, and uh, I haven't ever done any mechanical engineering. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how did you, um, how did you kind of navigate that? I mean, your first company in college here doing software development, um, what kind of hard lessons did you have to learn along the way? Well, so uh, lesson number one is it's really hard to operate a company or sell a product or service while you're taking 21 credits a semester. Uh, so, so it was it was a part time gig, which which the lesson was unless you're willing to focus on something, you're not going to 
successful at it. So I was successful at graduating college because that's where my focus was at the time. Um, but uh, I, after graduation, I did actually spend maybe six months working at a my parents' basement to try to get that company going. I had, I had three other business partners. Uh, they all got jobs. And I said, well, I'm going to try to get our business going full time. And, uh, and quickly, quickly realized I probably need to go get a job to get out of this basement, make some money and, and get some experience. Um, what was that job? So my, my first job was working for a engineering software firm that made CAD CAM software, like okay. solid modeling. Uh, and you ever see that TV show, how it's made? Yeah. So, so my job was to go around to all these, uh, manufacturing facilities and demo our software, spend like a day or two learning how they make their, their things. Like I got to see how solo cups were made, how F, F, uh, F, 15 fighter planes were made, how Philip Morris made cigarettes, right? So I'd go in there, I'd spend a day, I'd demo our software, and then, and then, um, and that was my job. So oh, wow. Like so that, you know, how it's made, it was, it was pretty cool. So was it sales? It was, I was, I was an application engineer and I was working with our, our reseller channel. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so one, so the, the, the really the, the first big experience for me was, um, what we recruited a reseller out of Atlanta. And um, at that time, I'd, I'd sort of been thinking about this idea, to, uh, business idea related to what we were doing. I had this idea of building a, a engineering marketplace uh, where people can download these CAD files that our software created. Yeah. And, and then we would build in purchasing data into those files. So if you downloaded a, a, a cap screw from our library, you pretty much locked in who you're going to buy that cap screw from, right? And that, um, That's brilliant. What, what year is this? This was 1999. Wow. Ahead of your time, man. Yeah. You and, and Bezos. Uh, and, and so, so we were basically, we were basically uh, connecting. The whole idea behind that marketplace concept was connecting engineers that were designing stuff and, 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 and you know, sourcing or specifying components with the manufacturers that made that stuff. Sure. So we recruited this, this uh, reseller out of Atlanta, and, and he had a similar idea. Hmm. His idea was, was a little bit different, but uh, it was um, to create a marketplace where those that needed custom made components, you know, engineers would design stuff, but then they would outsource the manufacturing to machine shops and job shops. So he built a little platform, which was really nothing more than forms, online forms, where you specify what you need. And then, you know, that form kind of got emailed out to uh, suppliers that he knew, manufacturers that he knew that could, could uh, make it. And uh, the business was called Manufacturing Quote or MFG. And you had your minimum viable product. We had so he he had, you know, he had you know he had he was a little older so he had the experience and 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 understood the process. And I said I said you know hey I started a web developing company in college, and I got three guys up north that can actually build this, build an application, not just have this sort of email exchange, right? Right. So I went back home to uh, to up north and I I specced it out. And I I have this like product specification that I, I created and I went back down there three months later and I said, this is what we need. And, uh, for, for this, you know, for, for a nominal amount of money, I can get this built for you. And, um, he said, that's great. And, um, so I went back up, I got my three guys and I said, let's build this, you know, and we we're all young, just out of college. So we weren't really thinking about getting paid. We were more thinking about getting a job with stock options and, you know, benefiting from the upside potential success. Right. Uh, we built this and, and uh, it, it then landed us uh, a strategic investor 
in, in Thomas Publishing Company out of New York. So if, if you, anybody, I'm showing my age whenever I talk about these guys, but if you remember the Thomas Register, yeah. American manufacturers, now thomasnet.com, they were our early investor. And then fast forward four years, we sold half that business to Jeff Bezos. Nice. So it was, it was a fun ride and, and exciting. And then, and then well, uh, fill, fill me on a, a couple of details there because uh, so many pivotal moments, I'm sure in this journey. And, and just a couple that I picked up on is first of all, finding this guy out of Atlanta who helped hack together sort of your minimum viable product. How, how did you find that person? You said you kind of recruited them. Uh, how did you find them? And then how did you convince them to hack this first version together? Yeah. So, so, uh, my job at that company was to to manage a reseller channel, and, and there were companies that were reselling our software. And, and in that space, typically the companies would resell engineering software and manufacturing software. So on one side they had engineering customers, and the other side they had manufacturing customers. So between his two customer segments, they, he already had the you know the sort of the, the the foundation of a marketplace, or at least the participants, right? And that's one of the most challenging pieces of a marketplace business, right? Is there's a lot of challenging pieces, but, but there's certainly that, that very early chicken and the egg sort of, uh, you know, uh, challenge that you have to solve. Right. Yep. Um, so, so, um, you know, and he kind of did it sort of manually, right. And engineering customers would say, Hey, I need to get this made. Do you know anybody in town that can do it? And he's, he'd give them three phone numbers and, and, or the manufacturing customers would say, Hey, I'm looking for some business. Do you know, anybody that needs anything made. Right. This is sort of doing that manually. Right. Um, and then, and then I think, you know, when we, the, you know, the early web developing uh, experience, I think we demonstrated a knowledge base that he knew he needed that, that we had and we were young and, and eager and he, you know, took advantage of that and yeah. <laughs> got us for cheap and, and uh, you know, we, we picked up our lives and moved down to Atlanta to do this. Wow. That's awesome. And, and so then the, another big pivotal moment sounds like uh, getting connected with Jeff Bezos. Do you, do you have any more, uh, insight into how that all came about? So it was interesting. Uh, at that time, we had a term sheet on, on the, that was signed uh, to be acquired by, by a, uh, a company called Dassault. Dassault is, a, is a, one of the larger uh, software vendors of engineering software. Okay. And, um, and uh, have you heard of Blue Origin? It's, it's yeah. the Okay, sure. so Blue Origin is Jeff Bezos' private space race company, right? They're building. Yeah, I was actually just down on the Space Coast uh, with Steve Case and the the Rise of the Rest crew, uh, okay. checking out some of those those facilities. So, so back in early two thousands, like two thousand four, Blue Origin engineers were using our platform to source manufacturers. They were designing these things, and they oh, had to cool. get them made, right. Yeah. So uh, Bezos happened to be at Blue Origin one day. He was talking to these engineers, and and. Um, they were showing him how they were finding manufacturers to have parts made. And, uh, he called, he called, he called our CEO. Wow. Said, you know, I, saw, I see what you guys are doing. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, our CEO said, uh, this is, it's kind of crazy. Appreciate you calling. Uh, but we we're, we we've signed a term sheet to be acquired. He said, rip it up. I'll front the legal expense and I'll make it worth your while. <laughs> so that's what he did. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is history. The rest is history. Cool. So that was your first marketplace um, that you were involved with, right? That's right. That's right. And yeah. and what was the next step after that? So that company gets acquired. Uh, what's next step for you? What 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 are you thinking in all of this process? 
So I, I uh, exited the opportunity about that point in time. Um, I was the first employee, uh, first, you know, employee number one. I was, a, yeah. I, I, I call myself a founding employee, not necessarily a founder. Yep. Um, and did you, uh, did you walk away with something that you felt was worth your while? Yeah, I got paid. <laughs> so that was good. That's good. Uh, but, but more importantly, I, you know, uh, there were a lot of lessons learned. Uh, most of the lessons were lessons of what not to do. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, there's could, a lot. Could you, could you share maybe one or two of those so, uh, so that I don't make them? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> this, this is within the context of running a marketplace business. Um, MFG was a subscription-based revenue model. We charge suppliers a fee to participate in our marketplace. Um, uh, in, 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 in practicality in markets, specifically uh, um, capitalistic markets, uh, you know, 80% of the business is going to go to 20% of the suppliers. It's just sort of Prado's law. It holds true. 80, you know, 20% of, 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 of the market has figured out how to be competitive, how to offer good quality, good pricing, be responsive, do everything that's required to, to uh, attract the business, right? Yeah. So ultimately what happens is um, uh, 80% of the suppliers are not getting business and therefore do not find value in participating in a marketplace and, and uh, tend to blame everybody but themselves on why they're not getting the business. So yeah. So, so it becomes challenging, right? It's, it's challenging to grow a marketplace. We had very high churn on the supply side. Um, and I, and I would equate that primarily to how our revenue structure, you know, worked. Okay. So, so we said early on with Quipped as a marketplace, um, while it's, 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 you, you can, you can turn on cash a lot quicker with a subscription model. Yep. You don't have the longevity there. So we said early on, we, you know, we're going to be a transaction based model. It's performance based. We get paid when our suppliers get paid and that keeps everybody happy. Mm. Um, and, and that, that was probably the biggest lesson learned at, 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 at you know, running the manufacturing early, earlier marketplace. Go, go for more of the transactional fee model as opposed to membership or subscription. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's so hard to control the value proposition or, or provide consistent. You can control it, but, you, but it's hard to um, provide consistency to it because everybody gets something different out of it, right? They're, they're going to get as much out of the marketplace as they put in. Yep. And there's certain things that the marketplace simply can't control. If, if you, if your material costs are 10 times higher than, than your competitors, there's nothing the marketplace can do about that. You're simply not competitive. You have to re-engineer some backend processes within your business, right. not just to be competitive on my marketplace, but to be competitive anywhere. Right. Um, so, so, you know, um, the performance-based model just keeps the incentives aligned with, between the, you know, the, the, the administrators of the marketplace and those that are participating in it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have, have you seen any other um, marketplaces out there? I'm sure you study uh, the model quite a bit. Have you seen marketplaces uh, buck that trend successfully with a subscription? I, I, think, I think there's sort of two, two, um, two hybrid models. Um, one model is a marketplace that uh, balances being a marketplace and providing software features, right? So an example of that yep. may be OpenTable. Yep. OpenTable actually, I believe, started as a software company where they built a reservation platform for restaurants. They had all these people using the reservation platform. They said, holy cow, let's make a marketplace. Yeah. 
So on one side, it costs, you know, uh, you're, you're, paying, you're paying for the value of the features. On the other side, you're paying for the value of getting customers that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten. Right. Um, so that's one. I think the second version of the hybrid model is transaction fee-based marketplaces that allow you to differentiate yourself um, through, through additional, uh, you know, either subscriptions or, 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 uh, paying, paying to differentiate yourself. So like eBay, right? Yeah. It, you know, eBay may charge say, you know, 15% transaction fees in a particular product category, but if you want a picture, you're paying 35 cents more. If you want a bold listing, you're paying a dollar more. If you want to be in the top of the page, you're paying X amount more. Yeah. So that makes sense to me too, right? In a, in a capitalistic market, everyone, there's a, you know, uh, there's an evil, even playing field, but the big, the bigger and better companies have the resources to differentiate themselves in the way that the smaller companies simply, simply can't. And yep. I think, you know, in, in capitalism, uh, you know, in capitalistic countries, that's, that's, that's fine. Right. That, that, that's, yeah. that's all about. Well, I appreciate you sharing those examples. It really brings, brings the model to life. And, uh, I, I think in, in some ways, it's interesting to think about that 80%, right? You know, you mentioned uh, Pareto's law that 20% get 80% of the value off of a marketplace. How do you then engage with the other 80% or is it more like you kind of deprioritize those 80% because you know that they're not going to put in what's necessary to get more value? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so the first thing is that there, there's another key, there's another sort of, sort of big difference between what we did at, uh, in Atlanta, what we're doing here equipped, um, Atlanta was essentially, there's this, there's sort of this terminology out there, homogeneous for he versus heterogeneous. Okay. The so homogeneous marketplace, which is what we were building in Atlanta is a marketplace whereby every unit of supply is essentially the same. So think Uber, you know, every Uber ride is essentially, you have a different car, different driver, yep. but the actual, what is being provided is the same service driving you from point A to point B. You don't care who your Uber rider is as long as he shows up and gets you to where you need to go. Yeah. Airbnb is a heterogeneous marketplace. Every unit of supply is distinctly different. You do care which Airbnb you choose to, to secure when you go visit someplace, right? Yep. So, so Quip is very heterogeneous. You, you know, uh, we're, our equipment solves very specific problems and very specific configurations of equipment solve those problems. So you can't just use anything right in our marketplace, the 80, 20 rule. Um, it's a lot more granular, you know, yeah. maybe this, but, but it's very granular for each individual product category. And we have 20,000 different products on the website. Right. Yep. Um, in, in, in the, uh, in the other world, I, I don't know what the answer is because, because everybody's supplying the same exact thing. Uh, ultimately it becomes commodity driven and, and usually in, in that environment price wins out. Right. Uh, even though everyone says, well, you know, we, we have quality, we have customer service, we do this, we do that. At the end of the day, there's too many people doing the exact same thing and it becomes, you know, sort of commoditized. So, um, but in deciding on building another marketplace, we, we were, we were, we, we were sure to choose an idea where that was not a commoditized idea. Yep. And so in that scenario, do you find that the Pareto principle still carries over even in the heterogeneous? For certain product categories, but, but it, um, the, the, there's different challenges with heterogeneous marketplaces. Yeah. The, 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 the challenge is it's a lot harder to obtain critical mass and liquidity. It's a lot harder for transactions to actually be executed. If you think about Airbnb, 
if I have only three Airbnb hosts in a given city, it's going to be very difficult to make a match. Right. If I have 3,000, it's going to be a lot easier because there's a lot more options. Yep. Uber can get away with three drivers. You know, if you've got three riders and you've got three drivers, then it doesn't matter. Transactions are going to happen. Yeah, you've got a marketplace. Yeah. Now, the, the, the flip side is Airbnb has a much more defensible model than Uber. It's very difficult to do what they've done. It's very difficult to create what Quipped has built. It's going to take a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of supplier aggregation in order to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think with Uber, you know, it's defensible, but, you know, you, Airbnb, think about Airbnb as competitors. They have VRBO and Airbnb. There's a lot of Uber competitors out there. And guess what? All the drivers, you know, if you, the Uber driver that you ride it, you ride with is probably driving for Lyft as well. And maybe a taxi yep. driver on the side, right? Yep. The, the supply is the same and they're just getting rides off of different platforms. Totally. Yeah. So it's, it's, a diff, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. That's very interesting. So, so tell me a little bit about the Genesis of Quipped. When did you first have the idea and what was, what was the sort of like aha moment for you? Yeah. So, um, after, uh, after I exited from the manufacturing marketplace, uh, I started another company, not quite as sexy, uh, called Global Test Supply. We're a distributor of engineering equipment. Okay. Uh, buy low, sell high model, nothing fancy, but, but except that we, were, uh, we went to market digitally online and that's where our expertise lied. Nice. While at Global, customers came up to us and they said, you know, you guys sell this rather expensive equipment. Uh, we have a sort of short-term need for it. Would you be willing to rent it to us? Mm. And, and being opportunistic, I said, sure, why not, right? And right. quickly, I realized how lucrative the equipment rental business uh, could be. And we built up this, this rather sizable inventory of uh, equipment, rented it out, and, and uh, it became a very significant portion of our business. I sold that business uh, back in 2011 to a Canadian company and then the thought occurred to me, I said, you know, um, there's got to be a lot of global test supplies out there servicing sort of these niche equipment rental or specialty equipment rental demand, right? You think about equipment rental, we always think about construction. You're thinking about excavators and scissor lifts and, and United Rentals and Sunbelt and Herc, but you're not thinking about medical equipment, laboratory equipment engineering equipment, food service equipment, you know, audio visual. There's every industry has a equipment rental component to it. So our thesis was, you know, a marketplace marketplace like MFG could serve equipment rental, the equipment rental industry very well. And there was nobody doing it. Mm. And uh, we scrapped together a website, scoped it out, put a plan together, launched it. Took, it was about a three month journey. And then, and then almost immediately validated our, 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 our assumption structure. And uh, what, what did validation look like there for that first version? Um, you know, it ever, I don't think I've ever been involved in a business where every single person ranging from those that have deep domain expertise on what you're doing to those that have no idea of what you're doing. <laughs> every single person says, this is a fantastic idea, right? Customers were saying, you know, this is great. Uh, suppliers were saying, this is great. Investors were saying this was great. You know, people that knew nothing about what we were doing saying it sounds like, sounds great. Right. So, so there's a lot of anecdotal validation early on. Uh, yeah. and, and then, and then uh, real validation came in the form of the data. You know, we started doing transactions. Yeah. Our customers were happy. They, they, we had repeat customers. We have suppliers that have been with us since day one. I mean, we're driving hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business to suppliers. And then you start hearing things like, you know, a uh, supplier last week said, you know, I get business from two, two, two sources, word of mouth and quipped. 
people have said, uh, you know, Quip is great. I've, I've, it's, it, it pays for my warehouse guy. Or, you know, um, I've grown my business, my rental business, you know, uh, 200% just by being unquipped, right? So, so, you know, you get a lot of anecdote, which is really what feeds the emotion. Yeah. And the data drives the decisions, right? <laughs> That's awesome, man. What would have been the biggest uh, breakthroughs? What were the, some of the bigger breakthroughs early on with Quipped? I, I mean, I, even though you're getting early validation early on, I'm, uh, I've been around enough startups to know that it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows and up and to the right. What, what were some of the challenges that you hit? Well, so, um, you know, a, a business model like ours cannot be done organically. You know, there, there's capitalization required here and, and we had to go out and, and secure that. Um, I, I think, uh, 20 years of experience and, and a little bit of gray hair, uh, goes a long way in security. I think I may have more than you at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you know, in, investors are making bets on the people, you know, uh, I think a bad idea, well executed is going to pay off a lot, a lot more than a great idea, poorly executed. Right. Yeah. So, um, but, but I think in, in, in recruiting invest investment, you have to be just as careful about choosing your investors as they are about choosing you. Sure. Um, and, and, uh, being pragmatic, you know, being optimistic, uh, and, but balancing that out with being pragmatic and, and making sure everyone understands the risk involved. Uh, I, I think that's key. I think we've done a good job at that. You know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, and, 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 you know, we were very cautious not to take money from somebody that I, I didn't think could lose that money. Yeah. You no, know? that's great. That's really great. Did you, um, did you take it mostly out to your own personal network and high net worth individuals? We, we did initially, we probably raised, uh, I, I had an individual who had invested in my prior company when it sold, he got paid. Uh, so those are always good, good people to start with. That was, that was, that was a great person to start with. Yeah. That was the person I, I could, you know, give him a, give him a napkin idea and, and he had trust in me to, to, to execute. Um, so that was very, very early on. We raised a hundred thousand dollars from one person. Yeah. Uh, that afforded us the ability to hire two employees. Yep. Um, and, uh, um, but then we, we reached out to our local network. And we probably raised another, maybe a couple hundred thousand. Uh, but then I, then beyond that, I, you know, I, I had to get serious about fundraising. Yep. Uh, and, and that's probably about the time you and I met. Um, I started reaching out to organizations like Powder Keg, uh, One Million Cups. Um, and, and then those organizations uh, helped me find out, identify, and, and, and get introduced to the investor networks. So the majority of our money uh, raised has come from Angel Networks. There's a group out of the Southeast called Venture South. And then we raised yep. uh, a bunch of money from the Wolfpack Investor Network out of NC State. Uh, and, and then we landed our first institutional investor just this past year. And, oh, congratulations. That's awesome, man. So we talk to VCs all the time now. I mean, we're, we're, we're no doubt we're on the radar. Uh, yeah. We're trying to get the business to a point where uh, it makes sense for everybody to, to take it to the next level. That's exciting, man. And, and growing your team there in, in Wilmington, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the culture of, of Wilmington uh, and, and why you chose to have your headquarters there? Yeah. So, so, so this is the biggest lesson learned, uh, primarily from the Atlanta experience with the manufacturing marketplace. Um, I worked for a guy 
who is uh, very entrepreneurial, but I'll say he was a bit Donald Trump-esque. Uh, he did not exactly create a working environment that um, was stress-free, uh, and, and there's a lot of unnecessary internal friction within that mm. culture. I worked with some of the smartest guys that I've ever met there, but we could have done so much more with the right leadership in place. So um, I, I said, you know, early on, I said, you know, no matter what I do, if I don't go to work and have fun every day, I'm simply not going to do it. <laughs> That's great. And I was fortunate to learn at a very young age, you know, when I left that, when I exited that opportunity, um, I could have stayed. And if I stayed, I probably would have, I probably would have cashed out 10 X more than I did. Um, but, but I went through that sort of psychological decision early on in life to understand that life's really not about money. There's no amount of money that's going to buy happiness. And that's, that's a very true statement. I know it's easy to say that once you have money, um, but uh, it, it, it's very true. So I said, I said, you know, quip, the quip culture is going to be about having fun. It's, it's going to be about coming to work, loving what you do, loving who you're doing it with, not having a whole lot of tolerance for, for uh, anyone that's going to try to disrupt that flow. Uh, and, and Wilmington, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you're not, if you've never been to Wilmington, it, this is the greatest place, one of the greatest places, uh, in the country to live. Right. Um, and people move here because of lifestyle. There's a yeah. lot of, we live on the ocean. We have this beautiful downtown and culture and, um, weather's great. And, and there's so much to do here. People move here for the lifestyle. So, you know, the culture equipped is we are, we are, you, you know, working to live, not living to work. Yeah. And, and, um, and we have fun. And if you're not having fun, that's a good reason to come into the CEO's office and, and, you know, gripe. Yeah. That's what it's all about. So, um, and, and it turns out if you get a whole bunch of people in a room and they're having a lot of fun every day and they really like each other, guess what? They do amazing things. Absolutely. Well, t talk to me a little bit about how you grow that team. What's, um, What's the, the talent acquisition model for you in a place like Wilmington? Well, we interview about a hundred people and we choose one or two. <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, I say that jokingly, but it's probably not far from the truth. I mean, we, we are highly, at least, you know, we're at 15 employees right now. You know, the first say 30 employees you hire, you know, you, those are the, probably the most critical decisions you're going to make in your business because uh, those employees are the ones that are going to effectuate your culture and ultimately make future hiring decisions. And, and if they're not making the same cultural decisions that you are as leader, as leadership, then, then you're going to be in for trouble later on that road. So, um, so we're very careful, you know, and we put them through, uh, you know, we want to get to know people. Um, yeah. we kind of want to get to know them over a period of time. You know, um, we're, we're, we're big on, you know, we, we, we like, or I appreciate referrals from other employees, but I've, I've, I've said this for a long time. I said, I don't mind to hire somebody as long as you don't have a problem firing them if they don't work out. Yeah. And that gets people thinking about whether or not they're the right fit, right? <laughs> I like it. Do you have any other go-to interview questions? Uh, you know, we just, uh, outside of skill set questions, we want to know what drives people. You know, what do you do for fun? What motivates you? You know, what doesn't, you know, what, 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 what rubs you the wrong way? You know, what, mm. Tell me about, you know, what do you, um, what are your personal goals? You know, are your personal goals going to be aligned with what our business goals are, right? Um, um, we, we don't, we, we look for the talent knowing that we can train the skill set, right? I mean, skill set, yep. 
are easy to develop talents or not. And you can't, you know, you can take somebody that went to accounting school or has a master's in accounting, but if they don't have the ability to pay attention to detail, no matter how much schooling they have, they're never going to be a good accountant. And there's nothing you can do about that. Right. Yeah. So, so you don't want to hire any dyslexic accountants. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, do you have any advice for uh, people who might be interviewing at a startup or considering working at a startup? Well, I think, I think, uh, you know, our, our society and culture has always um, viewed certain things as one way. So, you know, the, the employee employer relationship was always viewed as a one way relationship where the employer was, uh, you know, sort of, sort of the, in charge of that relationship or, or steered it. Right. Yeah. Uh, investor, uh, you know, entrepreneur investor is always perceived that the investor is really the one charge in, in charge of that. I, I think it's important that anybody working, you know, that, 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 you know, that's interviewing for a job has to make sure that the company is a right fit for, for them. And I can tell when people are thinking that way because they come in loaded up with questions about what's this experience going to be like for me. You know, and, and is it going to do, is it going to align with what I'm looking for personally, what I'm looking for culturally, right? Um, the people that come in and are, you know, uh, only answering what's asked of them, they have no interest in making sure this is a right fit for them. Right. Same thing with investors. I talk to VCs all the time. And usually, you know, historically, those conversations are VC, ask investor, entrepreneur question. And, and, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of the entrepreneur asking the VC a question. I have a whole slew of, you know, uh, questions that I want to know about the VC firm, you know, what's motivating them, who their LPs are, what ratios are they, they being held accountable to, what, you know, what, what's their tolerance for risk? What, what are they going to do when, you know, uh, you know, things don't go the right way. What, what are their experiences? What are their backgrounds? Um, because, because at the end of the day, if you're not a good fit for us, we're not going to be a good fit for you. Sure. That, that's really good advice. I, I appreciate you sharing that uh, from both perspectives, both from the uh, potential employee standpoint, but also the, the potential uh, investee potential. Uh, it's a really good perspective to take when, uh, when looking at any sort of partnership at any level. I, I think Steve Jobs, I'm sure there's always a Steve Jobs quote in a good podcast and I forget exactly what the quote is, but, um, he, he basically said something happens, something magical happens when you turn 40 and you stop giving a shit about other people's perceptions. And that doesn't mean you don't do what's right. And what, you know, but it just, it, it what, you know, the tw your twenties is all about impressing people so you can build a foundation for your career. And then the thirties is about proving yourself. The forties is, it's about having fun. It's like take everything that you've done for the last two decades and, and, and leverage that, do it right. And do it in a way that makes you, that, that satisfies you. Right. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Well, what are you most excited about right now? What, where, where are you having the most fun equipped? Well, I, I think what I'm most excited about is, you know, we are, we are, um, uh, in a stage, uh, that I've not personally been, uh, at, prior and that is we are we are in scale mode we are we are scaling this business you know we i've been in the creative upstart mode i've been in the proof of concept mode i've been in early success mode we, we are now in this works we know this works we know this is a big opportunity we got the right people in place we got some money in the bank let's make it happen and and that's that's fun that's that's exciting have there been some uh, hard lessons in that that transition from startup mode to scale up mode 
there are definitely lessons, uh, but once again, like I said, when when once you once you turn forty, you don't <laughs> hard anymore because that's not your that's not what your take on life is, right? Yeah. Any any mindset shifts that you've you've kind of learned? Uh, I, I would imagine because I, I'm in the same boat. I've either joined at a scale up or I most of my career has been in startup mode. Yeah. And so making that transition, I feel like it would be very hard to turn off the like, okay, what else are we going to launch? And what, what else are we going to create? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. The, um, the biggest mind shift change for me is um, I, I have to start thinking outside of creation mode and more, more operationally. And I actually brought a, a strategic person in place to help me with that because that's not something that – that's not a strength of mine. I'm, I'm very – anecdotal and let's create an idea let's throw it out there let's test it let's try it let's see if it works let's evolve it um we now have an individual here who's very uh analytical focused on the data data drives decisions there's frameworks for decision making everything in this business should be should be measured driven by data and process should be plug and play you know there's there should not be anything in this business where if if one element uh, collapses, it, 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 it cannot be easily replaced. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's helping us really write our recipe and, and, and then, and then just bake over and over again. I mean, that's, that's what scale is. It's here's a process. It works. It's driven by these datas and the, the, these frameworks and you just keep doing it over and over and over again. I like the recipe uh, metaphor. That's good. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, for people that want to learn more about Quipped, uh, re refer someone who might need to rent equipment yeah. or re refer someone that might want to join the team as you guys continue to scale uh, and join you there on the coast in North Carolina. Uh, where should they look you up? What, what's a good place to go? Quipped.com. K-W-I-P-P-E-D. Uh, that's that's awesome. a good starting point. Um, we, we're a very, uh, at, the, at the moment, we're a very accessible organization. So uh, our contact information's on, on the site. Um, but you can follow us on social media. Um, we, we, um, we, Where are you most active personally? Are you on, on LinkedIn or Twitter or Snapchat? <laughs> I am on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I'll say that I'm probably, I'm not overly, uh, uh, most, I am most active personally in my office dealing with my 15 people every you've day. Got a you've got a business to run. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah, so, um, uh, that's, 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 that's what I do. Uh, cool. But, um, I would invite anybody, uh, no matter who you are, if you have an interest in learning more or have questions to reach out because you know, there was a point in my life where I felt like certain people were unapproachable and I told myself I'd never want to be one of those people. Well, I, I don't, for what it's worth, I don't think you're one of those people. Uh, it's been, it's been really great to follow along the last couple of years as you guys have scaled. And I love that you guys are just on a tear right now scaling and I uh, really appreciate you sharing some of your own personal lessons as well as uh, some of the lessons you've learned in, in scaling marketplaces. This is almost like a little uh, mini masterclass in marketplace models. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I really appreciate it, man. Right, thank you for the opportunity. And hopefully we have you back on the show soon. Absolutely. All right. Until then, man. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you walk away feeling inspired and armed with a lot of insights about marketplace businesses and the model and strategies around that. Uh, you can find Quipped on Twitter. That's K-W-I-P-P-E-D 
underscore com. So quipped underscore com on Twitter or go to quipped.com to find out more. Now, if you're a professional in the tech space, Powderkeg can help you connect with a job you love. Hopefully you're already at one right now. But if you're interested in what's out there, you can join thousands of top professionals in the Powderkeg community to get connected with the hottest tech companies between the coasts. Visit powderkeg.com to join the network and see what's out there. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. And we'll catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups. 